When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. It takes a special personality and mindset to be a Major League Baseball beat reporter. You have to be tough, relentless, a dogged reporter, a fast writer on deadline. If you have a witty, dry sense of humor, well, that helps too. Sheldon Oker showed all those qualities in 33 years of covering baseball for the Akron Beacon Journal. I know it from being around him at the ballpark over many years. You'll know it from listening to this episode of Press Box Access. Sheldon, it's a pleasure to have you join us. It's my pleasure to be here. You had nothing better to do than talk to me. Come on, Sheldon. You kidding me? This is this is this is the best thing I've done in like six months. <laughs> I am very very thrilled that you're you're here. I I miss seeing you up at the ballpark. Uh, you were someone I always respected and always enjoyed being with at the park. Uh, I know you had to respect to your peers. Thirty three seasons of covering Major League Baseball in Cleveland. In 2018, you were awarded the Spink Award for merit. Meritus contributions to baseball writing. Meritus. That's quite a word, Sheldon. I don't, uh, I think that means I was married twice. <laughs> well, I know one thing. Your, your peers all respected you. The great Paul Hoynes, your friend, a competitor on the Cleveland Beat, he said you possessed four essential qualities that beat writers need. Good reporter, strong opinions, could write on deadline, and you knew the best restaurants in every city on the road. Uh, I, the last one's right. <laughs> so I know I mentioned the respect of your peers in all seriousness, but you know also the the athletes that you covered, the players, and I think it showed when you were honored at Cooperstown in 2018 at the Hall of Fame. The baseball writers had their reception, their traditional reception for honorees. You and Bob Costas were honored, and Jim Tomey um, showed up at your reception. Um, you know, and he played for the Indians all those years, those great teams in the 90s, and you covered those teams. What did, what did it mean to you for a player that you covered to, you know, take the time to, to as he said, pay you respect? Well, you know, for one thing, I, it was, I felt really honored to, to have been given that award and go into the Hall of Fame the same year as he did as a player. And uh, that was one of, to me, that was one of the highlights for me that, uh, that I could be there with him when he was being inducted. Uh, he's, he's a great player, and he's one of the nicest guys you ever want to meet. And uh, it, it helped me to, uh, first of all, I, I knew, I, I probably knew about eight or ten of the uh, Hall of Famers that were there that came back for the ceremony. So that made me feel a little comfortable. But I did, it just hit me uh, what was going on when... Um, uh, before you, uh, 
They they had my ceremony and Bob Costas is on Saturday and they do the uh, players on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And everybody gathers in this room uh, before they get on a bus to go to the to they go to the site where the ceremony is. So I walked into this room and uh, I, I look around and there's like 50 Hall of Fame players sitting there. And I'm thinking, what in the hell? I must have gone to the wrong room. You know, what am I, what am I doing here? And uh, so I had to decide where, I, you know, I have to sit down and wait for the bus. So should I sit at uh, Eddie Murray's table or Winfield's table or uh, Trevor Hoffman's table? Or, and I'm thinking, well, I probably shouldn't sit anywhere. Or should you serve the food? Yeah, right. <laughs> and then there was no food to be served. Otherwise, that's probably what I would have done. But uh, uh, so I saw uh, Jim Tomey sitting in the uh, head about three seats at his table. So I sat with him. But that's when it struck me about uh, the uh, that this was this was a big deal. And uh, it was a big deal in my life. Well, it was well-deserved all those years. I mean, I have so much respect for baseball writers. I was a guy who kind of did a little bit of everything and would pop in at the ballpark for a few days, and then I'd be off doing some other sport. But the relentlessness of baseball, you know, 162 games, regular season, spring training, playoffs, if your team is fortunate to go there, you got to be there day after day covering a game that's really has failure at its core uh, you were known as somebody who rarely ever took a day off in your 33 seasons covering the Indians for the Akron Beacon Journal. Why were you such that you did not even see, you know what, I'm going to take Tuesday's game off. Why did you keep showing up day after day? Uh, you know, when I started, I just went to work on, you know, Monday, and then I went to work on Tuesday, and and then I worked to work, went to work on Wednesday, and after a while, it was 1986. And I just kept going. I didn't really intend to do that. But uh, once I started to do it, that's just how I did the job. And uh, I didn't really have a backup because I never took a day off. So they didn't, just didn't hey, give me a backup. And uh, I probably, there were probably periods of, you know, five years when I didn't miss a game. Wow. <laughs> One time uh, uh, the, the Indians were playing Oakland. And uh, Dave Stewart was pitching. And I forget if he hit a guy or almost hit a guy. There had been a couple of incidents prior to that. And Corrales runs out of the dugout to the mound. He he takes a swing at uh, Stewart and misses. And Stewart karate kicked him. Really? I'm sorry, not correct. He cold cocked him in the, in the head with a punch. And Corrales went down. And uh, after the game, he had a welt, like, right right over here. And uh, we asked him about the fight, and he says, what fight? <laughs> I wasn't in any fight. <laughs> Dave Stewart and I weren't fighting. <laughs> he just denied that the whole thing happened. You mentioned he was tough, but you liked working with him. Why is that? You would think it would be the opposite if he was tough. He was uh, real candid when he talk to you. I mean, he'd tell you everything going on, but uh, he was can And he would talk about, uh, he, you could have a casual conversation with him about his personal life, and and uh, he wasn't uh, averse to talking about that. Uh, he, he trusted people. I mean, he decided who he could trust, and he seemed like he trusted me, and he trusted Hoyts, and 
Uh, another thing, because he saw us all the time. Right, right. That conversation piece, I always felt was a good way to build a rapport of relationship, where then when you really needed to, to ask a tough question on deadline, they at least knew who you were because they had some kind of uh, rapport with you. Did that always... Was that always a way that you tried to approach the the athletes and the coaches and the managers? Yeah, I mean, uh, you just have an advantage when you're the beat writer compared to somebody who just shows up. Or maybe even the beat writer from another team that they don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a huge trust factor in all this stuff. And, and it's a little different now because you don't have the access that you used to have in any of these sports. And baseball had the most access. You could you could go to the ballpark at 2 in the afternoon, wander around the clubhouse uh, from 2 in the afternoon till the game started, almost, so a half hour before the game started. Right. Uh, and so uh, you were at least part of the furniture. They, they didn't look around, oh, what's he doing in here? They knew you were going to be there, and they didn't, you know, didn't think it was a big deal. Now you... Uh, if you get 45 minutes in the clubhouse, that's about it. Yeah, and they don't really get to know you. And- right. And football was always real, you know, we talk to the quarterback on a Tuesday and the left tackle on Wednesday, and, and you know, you get 10 minutes with each guy or whatever it is. And and you would never you never got the access to football that you had in baseball. Uh, the NBA, which I covered for 10 years, used to be almost as good as baseball. Uh, you could you could go in the club, you go in the locker room early and talk to guys, and you didn't have guys then that said, "Well, I don't talk before the game." I mean, that, that didn't exist. Yeah, let's t- let's talk about that. You know, before you took over um, Major League Baseball beat for the Akron Beacon Journal in 1981, you did cover the NBA, the Cavs, for 10 years. You know, they come to Cleveland in 1970-71 uh, the NBA uh, as an NBA expansion franchise. And I, you didn't cover that first team, though, right? No, I didn't cover the first year. I actually, uh, I was covering the Cavaliers as punishment. <laughs> really? Explain. Well, I, I the year before, I covered the uh, University of Akron. And the editor of the paper was on the board of trustees at Akron U. And he kept close watch on what the beat writer did. And uh, there was one guy who covered Akron U who wrote a basketball story, a game story. Uh, at that time, you would just leave the copy on the desk and go home. Well, this is one night he did that, and the uh, editor who was uh, kind of legendary uh, in around Northeast Ohio, his name was Ben Maidenberg, he had, he had a wander in the office, and he had gone to the game. So he goes over to the sports department and thinks, well, what did uh, so-and-so write about the game tonight? So he reads the story. He doesn't like the story. He rewrites it and puts the other guy's name on top. (laughs) 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 So this is the kind of stuff that he did. The golden age of sports writing. (laughs) Right. And I didn't do that all the time, but he... he, uh, at the time, uh, uh, the rubber ball, which is where Akron U played, uh, it was being uh, sold to, uh, the city was selling it to Akron U with the provision they made uh, X number of million dollars of improvements. So one of the thing they, things they wanted to do was put new lights up 
because they the the lights that were there they were on these poles that stood on the sideline. And if you're uh, in the stands, you had to look through the poles. You and it also see. sounds very safe. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I win. Uh, uh, so they were considering putting him on the back of the grandstand. So they'd be out of the way. They'd be higher. They'd be much better. And it was when uh, uh, things were being starting to be televised in color, sporting events. And you needed more, more, much more lighting for color TV. Uh, so I wrote a column about how uh, they should do this, put the lights that way instead of the other way. And uh, I cited the university architect as agreeing. So the next day, uh, I'm, I, was, I was in the office and I get a call from uh, Maidenberg who was on the other side of the row. And, or no, I'm sorry, I got a note. He sent me a note like, are you stupid? What are you talking about? Why are you giving this opinion? And so being, being stupid, and I don't even the paper for, I think, two or three years at the time. I said, well, I'll just go over to Ben. I'll explain it to him, and he'll agree with me. So I walk over to his office. I said, Ben, uh, can I talk to you about something? He says, yeah. So I, I launched into this. I got about 12 seconds out of my mouth, and he starts screaming at me about how, how can I write something like this? Because he, he happened, and I didn't know this. He was on the Building and Grounds Committee, so he was oh. in, had something to do with, specifically with this stuff. Okay, all right. And, of course, the, the lights I wanted cost a lot more money. <laughs> <clears throat> and he launched into this thing about, this is a stupid thing to say. And who told you this stuff? And I said, well, the university architect. He says, well, what does he know? <laughs> <laughs> so that was one strike. And then I remember I wrote something else that he didn't like uh, that he told the sports editor about. So they put you on the Cavs beat because they didn't like what you were writing. Exactly. At the end of the school year, he uh, Sports editor says, you're covering the Cavs because Ben doesn't like the way you cover Akron U. And I was about the fifth straight guy who got in trouble covering Akron U. So it was no, it was, this was not unusual. Well, you show, up, you show up the old Cleveland arena back in the day with those Cavs teams and Bill Fitch is the coach. Well, first of all, the, the arena was, you can't imagine how bad it was. Uh, the visitors' locker room was so bad that there was a uh, a lot of the team stayed across the street. <clears throat> there was a hotel across the street, uh, and they would get dressed in their rooms and walk across the street. Really? One time, I'm dri driving down the street, and I I had to stop because Will Chamberlain was was crossing the street in his warm ups. <laughs> <laughs> Before I got in the parking lot, yeah. And uh, I remember John Havlicek was the Celtics uh, player rep for the union. Right. And uh, he would talk about how bad the visitor's locker room was. I mean, it's one of those things where you turn the water on in the shower and somebody else turned the water on, uh, like, in the sink, and, and you'd get scalded with hot water because they were using the cold water, and it was, it, you know, it was, uh, it was really bad. And uh, 
So that was one difference. The facilities were, you know, nothing like they are now. If you've been in an NBA locker room now, it's almost like you're at the, uh, you know, at the uh, country club, uh, the Augusta National locker room, you know. Right. Where it's you, just, they're like palaces now compared yeah, to like yeah. those old barns like the Cleveland Arena. Right. And right. Uh, so that was one difference. Uh, another thing was uh, you, now nobody, I don't think any media people sit at the scorer's table. Uh, at that time, the uh, home team writers would sit right next to the home team bench, and the visiting team writers would sit next to the uh, visiting team bench, except in Los Angeles. They were the, uh, uh, they were the vanguard of... Uh, Putting of, the celebrities uh, on the front row instead of the hacks. Yeah, well, they didn't actually, they didn't even do that then, but they, uh, the media sat in the grandstand and uh, they were pretty good seats, but they were not, uh, they were not in the front row and they were not near the benches. But you're sitting uh, but, next to the coach, you can hear everything. Right, you could, yeah, what's going on in the huddle and all that stuff. And I remember one time uh, a fan was heckling uh, one of the players on the visiting team and I'm sitting there, and the, the guy's behind me, about four rows behind me. And the player, he, he got so mad, he, he went after him. He jumped over me. I can't remember who it was. It was a big, like a 6'10", like a 6'10 guy, and into the stands. And uh, they caught him before he got the guy. And I remember Fitch had to do the same thing with one of his players. Uh, he, he went in the stands trying to get a heckler, and Fitch ran after him. Fitch was a, a martial arts teacher, instructor in the Army, so... So he could, he could keep uh, order. <laughs> he could hold it, yeah. He could hold his own. But he's, he, he was much better keeping order with his mouth because he... I remember there was one game, and I didn't actually see this because it was in the locker room at halftime. They were losing, and uh, this was when they were still the expansion team years. And uh, Fitch goes in the uh, locker room and doesn't say anything to him. He goes, continues on into the showers and the toilets. And he flushes the toilet five times. <laughs> and he goes, there go my starters. <laughs> Did that make your story? I, I don't think I knew about it till you know, like three days later or something. <laughs> well, there was certainly a lot of humor in those days in the NBA, too. And before we leave your decade of NBA writing, I must bring up the name of Ted Stepien. We need another eight hours for that. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we might do an extended uh, version of this. So Ted Stepien purchased the Cleveland Cavaliers in 1980. And I think soon afterward, you asked him for an interview. Can you please tell us what transpired from that point? Well, they wanted a story about him in the Sunday magazine. And uh, I didn't know much about him except uh, people thought he was a pain in the ass. But other than that, I didn't, I didn't really know anything about him except he, he had a softball team. Well, that's another story. But anyway, so I... I said, Mr. Stepien, this was at the press conference that he had to announce his ownership. I says, uh, I need you for a couple, two, three hours uh, for a story for our Sunday magazine. He says, why don't you come over Sunday after church 
and uh, we'll sit out by the pool and watch porn. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> so, so did you do it? Well, not exactly. Uh, so I go over to his house. Wait a minute, Sunday. wait a minute. How can you not exactly porn? Well, no, I mean, the whole thing that I went over to his house and he wasn't home. Oh, and his, he was inside he had, watching porn. Yeah, he had six daughters and uh, one of them answered the door and I says, where's your dad? He says, well, he's, he's at an audition for the team uh, cheerleader squad. I said, well, where is it? And uh, she didn't know. And I had to call like eight people to find out where it was. And it was at uh, a nightclub that closed on Sunday and in Willoughby in uh, Lake County. So I go over there and open the door. And it was basically dark inside, except for where the girls were uh, doing their cheerleading thing, auditioning. So he saw the sliver of light from the door and he turned his head and he saw who it was. He says, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. I, I, I forgot I had to do this. <laughs> I says, don't worry about it. So I go in and I, you know, I come into the middle of the auditions. So he's, the girls are, uh, each one does a cheerleading thing. And then he, in the, like it's Miss America, he's sitting there with two other people. He hired uh, these two people who owned a dance studio to be his experts. So they're sitting there, the three of them, and Ted has these questions that he asks, like, what's your favorite color? Uh, do you like uh, uh, comedies or dramas? Or do you, you like hot dogs or hamburgers? Or do you like mustard or ketchup? We really... <laughs> This is the owner of an NBA franchise. Yeah. And, in a strip and, club, uh, mind you. In a strip well, club. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. Well, he, he, he turned it into a strip club. Oh, uh, so, oh, this is before he turned it into a strip club. Yeah. Okay. So, All right. Uh, this one, he asked this one girl, so would, would, you go to a naked, would you go to a naked beach? And she's thinks for a while, she says, yeah, I'd go, I, I'd go with my husband. And Ted says, I didn't say anything about a husband. <laughs> I mean, the NBA should have known what they were getting into with this guy as soon as he bought the team. Yeah, yeah, they should have. Uh, so when it was over, I go over to his house. He says, follow me, we'll go to my house and do their interview. So, uh, he had to pick the team first. So he and the two dance people are sitting at the dining room table and they have these index cards with the score of each thing that the girls did. And, uh, you know, it's a poise. I gave her a six, so I gave her a four. I gave her an eight. God's sake. And Ted would go, she has small tits. She's out. And oh, he would sail. He would sail the index card into the living room. This sounds like a bad movie. It was, it was a bad movie. <laughs> and uh, this goes on for, you know, like there was 40 or 50 girls that tried out. I mean, what were you thinking? I mean, this is absurd. I mean, this is an NBA owner 
That's what I was thinking, that this is absurd. <laughs> Not to mention just treating women that way. I mean, right. what, what is going on here? Well, Ted was famous for that, or I found out that he was. Uh, he had hired some college girls to sell season tickets, and one of them became his girlfriend. Ted was 56. Uh, this girl was 21. And she was at this, uh, the audition in, at his house afterwards. So well, I think she we made got, the squad then, right? No, no, she was above the uh, squad. Oh, okay. she did. Uh, she went right so into she, management. Right. She was in management because when we got there, Ted says, Janice, why don't you go in the kitchen and make some bologna sandwiches for everybody? Oh, <laughs> I haven't even got to the, I, to the worst part yet. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Uh, when he gets done with all these index cards, he picks like 12 girls. And one of the, the dance people say, Ted, you didn't pick any black girls. And he looked at them in, like they were talking a foreign language. He didn't understand that concept of why you would, what difference does it make? He says, okay, we'll do that. So he gathers up the index cards and they go through them again and they pick a couple black girls. And uh, they finally get done with that and uh, the woman dance person says, well, we have to pick a name. And she says, how about the teddy bears? That's original for, you know, to anything to uh, get on Ted's good side. Oh my God. <laughs> and he's thinking about it and he... He looks at me and he says, what do you think of that? And I, I said, well, Ted, I don't know. People are going to think it's named for you and it you know, might not be a good look. And he, he thought that might make sense. And that, the woman looked at me like if, her, if, her look, if looks could kill, I'd have been done right there on the spot. So he said, well, we're going to wait a while for that. And they eventually did name of the teddy bears. They did. They, uh, they, they chose they a did, name. Yeah. Huh. And so afterwards, Ted's telling me about one of his daughters, and he wanted, uh, he wanted her to be, to go to film school and be a movie star. But instead she went to Kent. And uh, she, she happened to be, be home that day. And we had a photographer that came to the house to take pictures for the story. And he tells his daughter to, you know, go upstairs and put on a nice dress and everything. So she goes up, puts on this green cocktail dress and uh, comes downstairs and he's taking pictures. She's like doing twirls and posing and all this stuff. And there's softball, Ted loved softball. There's softball players walking in and out of the house for some reason. And it was just, it was like a train station for about an hour. Anyway, he finally gets done with the uh, cheerleading stuff. And uh, he says, you know, I tried to get my daughter in the Miss Ohio contest. Cost me 10 grand to get her in. Oh, my. And then she didn't win. Oh, God. Is, 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 is he really like a human? Was he a, was he a part of our species? Uh, he, at the time, I... I, we did a DNA did test. It was, <laughs> well, I mean, it was, uh, there, there's millions of stories about Ted and uh, none of them are good. 
Well, I think what it shows is it shows you where the NBA was at that time, that they would let a guy like Ted Stepien yeah. become an owner of a team. So in 1981, after a decade of covering the NBA, the Akron Beacon Journal comes to you and wants you to move over to baseball to cover, you know, the Indians, as we now call them, the Guardians. What was it like covering the Indians in the 1980s? Because we think of them as, you know, the 90s, the great teams that they had. But, man, they're playing at the old municipal stadium. They're not winning. There's not many people. What was it like going to the park every day as a baseball beat writer in the 1980s? Uh, well, you know Tim Kirk, Gene? Yes, he was on our show. Oh, okay. Well, Tim was working. Uh, uh, he was at the Baltimore Sun at the time, covering the Orioles. And one day, uh, it was around 1990 or 1991, he comes up to me and he says, he says, you know, I did some research. He says, you're the losingest pro beat writer in the country. Oh, really? <laughs> you're trying to win some award. <laughs> yeah. But I said, well, Tim, you need my award. You know, well, they had, they lost 100 or more games three times in a seven-year span. And that's pretty bad. The, the only thing about when you cover bad teams, there's usually more stories than when you cover good teams because uh, there's, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. The players there's just more unhappy. buffoonery and, going on. Yeah. yeah uh, not that I was hoping that they would lose all the time, but uh, the way it hap- that's the way it happens. And uh, a lot of the time it was just, they were on this treadmill. Uh, Gabe Paul was the general manager and the president of the team at the time. And uh, one year he would trade all the hitters for good pitchers, and then that didn't work. So a couple years later, he traded all the pitchers for hitters. (laughs) Well-rounded approach. Yeah, he could never get it right. I mean, he knew what he was doing, but it was like uh, the Indians uh, under the Dolans. They just didn't have any money. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a lot worse then. I mean, then they there was a time when they almost missed a payroll, which is, you know, far different than now. But Right, right. Well, everything became different in the 1990s when Jacobs Field opened, John Hart, general manager, Mike Hargrove, the manager, and all this talent amassed for the Indians. And all of a sudden, it became the place to be 455 consecutive sellouts this this magical team to cover. What was the energy like on the beat, and how did that impact your job um, through the 1990s as a as a major league baseball writer? Well, so for one thing, suddenly instead of uh, three beat writers and and that's it covering the team, <laughs> suddenly you had all this uh, Jim Ingram covered for Lake County uh, mm-hmm. uh, Herald. And uh, we had, a, all of a sudden, there's like five radio guys there and TV guys every night from the local stations. And so that was one one thing that was different. Another thing, they almost had to regulate uh, your access more because they had more people. And, you know, it's one thing if you have three people in a clubhouse and they're, you know, what's a big deal? Yeah, instead of you, Jim, and Hoinsey, you know, now having you, a conversation 30, with got somebody. Now you got 30 yeah. guys uh, right. in there. Right. And, so uh, that impacted how you did your job, yeah. And, and the players were, uh, they were more serious about their job. 
they went about things more seriously. They took it more seriously. Uh, they knew they uh, could win something big. And uh, so it, it wasn't like a big party or anything that they were so happy to be winning. Uh, it was they took their job seriously. Right. Uh, more so than they had before, uh, except a couple of guys. Uh, one time, Carlos Baerga, I walked in the clubhouse and his his locker was right near the door when you walk in. And I see a guy measuring him, you know, like for a suit. Like, what is he, a corpse? <laughs> <laughs> so he had his tailor come in the clubhouse and is measuring him for a new suit. Well, I know he wasn't end. measuring. The tailor wasn't measuring a sports writer. I know that. No, no, not for that. So Carlos is getting measured for a new suit. And I'm thinking, this is not really good. Uh, I mean, what's he thinking? Why would he do this in, in the clubhouse where everybody can see him, where John Hart's going to hear about it? And he got traded, uh, I don't know if it was that year or the next year, and he was still a good player. But John saw that he was not serious anymore about what he was doing, and he got rid of him. And Carlos is one of the few players that I ever saw that went from the top to the bottom in like six months. Yeah, all of a sudden, his whole career changed. Very, yeah. yeah, you don't see that very often. And it was because he just was, you know, partying all the time. I remember I saw him in Detroit. Uh, I was walking down the street in Greek Town, and this, this limo stops across the street from where I am, and there's like nine people get out, and it's Carlos's limo that he rented. And they go into this club, so... I had to give John credit for being ahead of this, mm -hmm. getting ahead of this, and he's trading a good player when he's still good. Yeah, John had his pulse on what was going on down there in the clubhouse. But he saw what was he saw what was going on. Well, what was going on for the team was was success, and really, when you think about those teams, was the offense. Just that those guys could just mash. I mean, in '99, they scored a thousand runs. 95 team that went 144 in a strike-shortened year that people forget the season started late. That, that lineup was just incredible. And you had some hitters who were also characters. And one of those that certainly comes to mind from a beat writer perspective is Albert Bell. Let's just have you describe what it was like to cover Albert Bell on a daily basis. Well... After a while, you get used to Albert. And I didn't realize what an impact he had in the clubhouse until he left. And I remember walking into spring training in Winter Haven, Florida, the year after he had gone in free agency. And I walk into the clubhouse and guys are talking and they're laughing and they're, you know, I said, well, there's something different here. Something's going on. This isn't the way it's been for the last eight, ten years. And it dawned on me that Albert's gone. The dark cloud over the clubhouse has moved on. And uh, that's the kind of difference he made in the clubhouse. I think everybody was always just a little bit on edge and uh, not quite themselves. Because he had a volcanic temper. I mean... You had to be like walking on eggshells around him, right? Well, uh, you know, I learned after a while that Albert, some of his tantrums were for show. 
he got he got off doing that. He he thought it was fun doing that. He got a kick out of doing that. And he, I think he did a lot of it on purpose that he wasn't really as mad as he seemed. He wasn't going to do anything violent when, uh, you know, he threatened to. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, Bud Shaw, who used to write for The Plain Dealer. Right. We had Bud on our show, too, yeah. Bud is there one day, and Albert comes in from batting practice, and uh, he accuses Bud of looking in his locker for something. Which he didn't. And Albert knew very well that he didn't. Right. Writers don't do that. Right. Uh, Albert, he, he, so he starts yelling at him and threatening him. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking, it went on for so long. I says, well, why doesn't Albert punch him? What's taking so long? Albert's threatening and all this stuff. And it dawned on me, he's doing this for sport. He just wants to intimidate Bud. Mm. And Albert gets off on that. And, of course, nothing happened. And from then on, I knew Albert's just mostly just bluff. Did you ever have confrontations with Albert personally? Uh, yeah, everybody should. <laughs> not, not, as, not as bad as that, but uh, the thing about Albert is you've, you just couldn't take any shit from him. It only took like five years to figure this out, but <laughs> I'm kind of slow. <laughs> I remember I was standing at the batting cage watching batting practice, and Albert's standing next to me, and he has a bat in his hand, and he puts it down on my foot. I said, hey, Albert, get that out of here. And he did. He didn't say a word. And he just took it off, and, you know, that was the end of it. He's just messing with you. Yeah. I, had, I once had Bobby Benilla swinging a bat in front of my face like he was warming up, practicing to oh, see yeah. if I would run away. And I'm like, I'm not leaving. If he hits me in the head, I might get to retire. Right. But I'm not going to leave. You yeah. Know? So well, sometimes time, they would just test you that way. One time uh, we're in Kansas City, and the ballpark is uh, far from where you're going to stay. at. Well, I shouldn't say that necessarily. <clears throat> Probably you're not going to stay near the ballpark. Uh, and the team didn't, and I didn't. And so I always had a car. So I get in my car after the game. Uh, I think Hoynes was in the car. Maybe Jim Inger was in the car, too. And I start going out, and there's another car right in front of me, and it's Albert. And uh, he was with Wayne Kirby, who was a bench guy. Mm -hmm. So we get... There's this winding uh, driveway to the park. We get out to the uh, street, and then you get right on the freeway. Albert wants to race. Oh, come on. He's going to race the beat reporters? Yeah. <laughs> now, if there's one thing he, that I know I'm better than Albert at, it's driving a car. <laughs> I'll race. And if somebody wants to race, I'm fine. I'm fine. So you're behind the wheel. What happens? We we race we we race downtown it's like I don't know six eight miles downtown, and then uh, you have to take the city streets up to uh, called Country Club Plaza where the hotel was, <laughs> and we race the whole way, and uh, and I beat him. <laughs> and, so you I mean you Hoinsey and Jim in this rental car are racing yeah. Albert Bell in his, in rental, his rental car, car. yeah, <laughs> and. 
When we get to, you know, I just get out of the car and walk in the hotel, and Albert's pretty close right behind. And he never said a word about it, ever. Did you ever say a gonna, word to him about it? No, I wasn't going to say a word to him either. <laughs> and uh, But you had that card if you could play it. But he, yeah, because he knew one had his witnesses. <laughs> That's tremendous. I've never heard of an athlete racing the riders in, in a car. Yeah. <laughs> but you think about Albert, though, and, and those, you know, the tantrums and, uh, and the mood. and but, but, man, what a hitter. I mean, unbelievable hitter and work ethic that he put into it. I mean, you you saw a guy at the apex of, of his craft when you were covering him with the, when he was in the middle of that Indians lineup. Well, you know, that whole team, uh, especially in, in probably 95 more so than the other years, if you think about that, that has to be one of the top three offensive teams in the history of baseball. Oh, definitely. Yeah. There was a, one or two teams in the 30s when the ball was really juiced and they... It, it, it's not a fair comparison even, but uh, that probably was every bit as good as the 27 Yankees. Well, Albert Bell was was such a fantastic hitter, but there were others in that lineup, as we noted. And one I want to touch on is Manny Ramirez. Because not only was he a prolific hitter, but what a character. Everybody has heard legendary tales of Manny being Manny. You covered the guy many years in Cleveland. Give us a little taste of Manny being Manny from your perspective. Well, one time I was just walking through the clubhouse and somebody jumps on my back and like, what's going on? And by the time I could turn around, it was Manny who got off of me and walked past me, turned around and smiled and just kept walking. That's it? Yeah, he just, I don't know. What he was, you know, I don't know what he's thinking or anything. <laughs> well, who knew? Who knew what he was thinking? Right? Yeah, uh, you know, one time I think it was Hoyas who who uh, saw his paycheck was on the floor of his locker and said something about, you know, he just had paychecks sitting around. Yeah, he left one in a cowboy boot, I think, at a game. Yeah, it was, in a, Texas yeah, or it was a cowboy yeah. boot. One, uh, one time he asked the clubhouse guys, uh, it was either to wash, get his car washed or serviced or something. And uh, he says, well, there'll be money in the glove compartment to pay for it. So they go out and they, they get uh, whatever they were supposed to do. And they open the glove compartment and there's an envelope with $10,000 in hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> Again, not the writer's car, the yeah, athlete's car. Right. <laughs> he got stopped for speeding in Cleveland uh, one night. And the cops recognized him and they said, Manny, we're sorry, we're going to have to give you a ticket. And Manny says, well, you don't have to give me tickets. I can get you tickets. <laughs> I think that was the one where he got like three tickets, right? Yeah, so he... Uh, they give him the ticket, and he leaves, and he makes a U-turn, and he gets another ticket. <laughs> so he gets for four. making a U-turn. I think, well, I think no, it was loud music, tinted windows, speeding, and U-turn. Well, Manny had <laughs> supposedly he had like three or four different driver's licenses, and he supposedly had two social security numbers, 
I don't know if, if that was true, but uh, that was a story. Wow. Didn't he once come up to you and Paul Hoynes and he basically wanted a loan or something, right? This was in Kansas City again. He was a rookie. He's sitting with Julian Taveras at a table in the clubhouse. Uh, Julian was, you know, one of the relief pitchers. And he calls me over and he, I says, what do you need, man? And he says, can you loan Julian and I $60,000? <laughs> and I reached in my pocket and I took out my money. I says, I don't have that much with me. And he says, well, how about 30000 <laughs> It's in your glove compartment. <laughs> yeah. So, right, yeah. So I said, what do you want it for? And he said, well, we saw these two Harleys that we really like to have, and they're $30,000 a piece. He thought you and Hoynes were walking around with sixty grand. Yeah. <laughs> so we go into Hargo's office a little later to, you know, our pregame meeting and stuff. I says, you know, your right fielder's going around asking people for $60,000. He says, yeah, I heard about it. He says he already asked John Hart to, for an advance on his salary, <laughs> which, of course, he didn't get. <laughs> Manny was Manny thought he was really street smart. I mean, he grew up in Washington Heights in New York, which is uh, uh, the toll neighborhood is, is Dominican. And uh, there's gangs, or there used to be, and gangs and all kinds of stuff going on. But they used to leave Manny alone because he was his baseball player, and they mm -hmm. were gonna. They knew how good he was, and hey, don't mess around with Manny. He let him do what he wants because, you know, he's gonna be do us proud when he gets old enough to play. Right. So they were right. Yeah. They were right. They uh, were very but right about Manny. Manny was Manny was undereducated, and pe people thought he was dumb. I don't think he was dumb. He was undereducated, and I think he had ADD. Somebody told me one time that he used to go to the Cleveland Clinic for these therapy sessions for being uh, having ADD. The NS denied it, I asked them, but uh, I don't think they were telling me the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, because he used to do these things like uh, uh, on ball four, he wouldn't go to first because he didn't realize it was ball four. Or on ball three, he would go to, he would ride around to first because he, he didn't realize it was ball three. He'd do little things like that. And I remember after he went to these sessions for a while, he quit doing some of that stuff. Mm. So I think that was a problem with him too. There was a one time he stole second. <laughs> I think Tommy was at the plate. He steals second and he's standing on a base and then he just starts jogging back to first. Yeah, he didn't, uh, yeah. He thought it was a foul ball. And uh, Yeah, wait a minute. Why did he go? I, I can't even remember why he went back to first. Yeah, well, they tagged him out, so he Matt, was basically thrown out stealing first. Yeah, from second. <laughs> from second. Yeah. There was uh, the one where he hit a home run, and after the game, he says, well, my bat was broke. I says, you mean you broke it when you hit the home run? Uh, no, no, it was broken before I went up there. So he went up to the plate with a broken with a bat broken, on purpose. I said, well, why would you use a broken bat? He says, well, I like that bat. <laughs> I think there was a time in, in spring training once where he hit like three straight homers using the bats of three teammates. Yeah, he used to just use other people's bats, other people's pants, other people's shirts. 
<laughs> if you were missing a glove or something, you would always go to Manny's locker and look to see if it was in there. The the Indians used to have a, a bullpen catcher who was uh, kind of hefty, and Manny would wear his baggy pants to take batting practice. <laughs> You know, Just pick I, up a spare pair of pants. Yeah, he he liked his pants. <laughs> I guess he thought it was funny to, well, which it was funny, to have him wearing the guy's pants. Well, he wasn't going to borrow the clothes of the sports writers. He no, borrowed their money. Sure. He borrowed their money, but not their clothes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, he had a he he had a right. If if we did, he only had one problem, we didn't have any money. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I did loan a player. I did loan a player money though once. You did? Uh, Who? Yeah. Pray uh, tell. Uh, Omar Vizquel. Really? Uh, we were in Houston, and the hotel was connected to a mall. And I'm walking through the mall, and, I, and Omar comes up, and he says, can I borrow $100? And I said, yeah. And, uh, you know, what am I going to say? I'm not going to give Omar Vizquel money? I mean, you know. So... Uh, he paid it back the next day. I don't know why I wanted it. But what kind of interest up there in Northeast Ohio? For one day? Yeah. Uh, I let him give me 98. <laughs> it's reverse interest. Well, you know, the thing about these stories of guys like Manny and, and, and Bell is that um, you forget that the work ethic those guys had and the time that they put into their craft made them great players. I mean, we joke and laugh and there's some funny, funny stories, but these were, these were, you know, talents of their generation at the plate. And that's why that lineup and that team was so successful, right? Yeah. I mean, well, people thought Manny was just a natural hitter and he didn't have to think about anything. You just go up there and, and hit 320 and 40 home runs. But Manny was, he was kind of a hitting savant. Manny would watch, uh, video all the time of himself. Right. And he took batting for extra batting practice all the time. And he really knew what he was doing when he went up there. It wasn't just, you know, he had him be blessed with great talent. So he just went up there and closed his eyes and, and hit. Uh, he worked hard at it. So did Albert. Well, the Indians of the 90s certainly put the work in and they had the talent. But, you know, when you look back, you know, they just came up a little short. You know, the 95 World Series against the Braves and the painful 97 World Series against the Marlins, losing both. Um, how do you think about those ball clubs when you look back on them now? Well, I mean, of course, the in 97, if, if Jose Mesa throws his fastball like Alomar wanted him to, uh, the Indians probably win that World Series. Oh, please explain that to us. Uh Mesa's comes in to save the game. This is game seven. The Indians are leading the Florida Marlins two to one, bottom of the ninth. Cleveland is on the doorstep of winning its first World Series championship since 1948. The, the, the network has already set up their stuff in the clubhouse, in the Indians clubhouse. They have all the lockers covered with, so, with plastic, and they have a little dais and and they're ready to do the presentation. And uh, Dick Jacobs is, is in the clubhouse already. And uh, Jose Mesa Bucks, Danny Alomar is catching. He calls for a fastball from Mesa, which is his best pitch. And Mesa shakes him off. No, 
And I almost just throw a fastball. No. So he throws a curveball or a slider, whatever it was, and and the guy gets a hit, ties the game. And uh, that should have been, you know, if he throws a fastball, he probably gets him out. And that's the end of the game. Why did he throw the fastball? Who knows? <laughs> when, when Mesa blew a save, he was almost inconsolable. He, he, was, he would like uh, mope around for like four or five days. You, you couldn't talk to him. He mm. was just too upset. Did he talk after that game seven? I don't think, you know, I was on, I, I was on deadline and I couldn't go down there. Uh, I don't think he did, uh, but I don't remember for sure. And at the time, it wasn't clear that that was a mistake, mm-hmm. that the pitch he threw was the wrong pitch. Well, yeah, they, they should have won then. We talked to some NBA, about a decade covering uh, basketball, but then 33 years of covering baseball. When you look back now, uh, Sheldon, uh, how do you think about the career that you had? Well, I was uh, supposed to be a lawyer. And I went to law school for four quarters at Ohio State. And a friend of mine who had been in journalism school and then quit school, went in the Army, came back after two years, and I was still there. Uh, I was in law school, and uh, I used to see him, and he'd tell me about, you know, what he was doing in journalism school and stuff. And I quit law school to to do this and uh, everybody was mad at me of course and uh, I think well I, I think I probably did the right thing uh, you know I did my job people thought it was okay and for the mo- most part I got along with uh, everybody I got along with the baseball people I wrote some decent stories I had a lot of uh, interesting experiences you were honored by the Baseball Hall of Fame, Sheldon. Come well, on, you're being I, much too... Well, yeah, I mean, I, I never thought... It was a slow year. You had quite the career. It was a slow year, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I certainly didn't expect anything like that. And and even if that hadn't happened, I, uh, I would be happy with uh, my choice of uh, career. So, Todd, you got to think of it this way. If you're at the ballpark, you don't have to pay the electric bill. <laughs> That's right. You don't have to cut the grass. You don't have to run right. any errands. You're right. just typing away about a game in front of you. Yeah, especially if you're a thousand miles away. That's right. That's right. Well, Sheldon, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate catching up again, and your stories uh, were fantastic, and I wish you all the best. Thanks for having me, Todd. I, pr- I appreciate it. Good time. Thanks for listening to Pressbox Access. We have new episodes every other Wednesday. Subscribe and review us. Five stars and I might buy you a beer. And check out the Pressbox Access channel on YouTube. You'll see a wide variety of clips from interviews, such as Dave Kindred comparing Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus, or Peter King recalling his early days of covering Bill Parcells and Lawrence Taylor. You can also listen to entire episodes on that YouTube channel. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button. Hey, it's free. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And please spread the word to friends, family, and anyone who is interested in sports, journalism, and history. All are welcomed.
This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Huffman, and our engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along The Planted Runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.